Hey, y'all. From NPR, it's been a minute. I'm Sam Sanders. So this week is Valentine's Day, this Wednesday. And in that spirit, this episode is all about love and marriage and how it works or does not. PBS reporter Liz Flock is my guest today. She wrote a book about these three couples that are struggling to figure out how to keep making their marriages work. The book is called The Heart is a Shifting Sea, Love and Marriage in Mumbai. And so over the last 10 years or so, Liz has been tracking the lives of these three married couples. She's been following the good and the bad and the ugly of their relationships. But here's the thing. The couples, they are not American. They're Indian. Liz spent years with these people in Mumbai. And so the book, it's not just about the couples. It is also about India itself and how the country is rapidly changing and how that change is playing out in relationships. I found it all quite fascinating, and it really made me ask some questions about my own attitudes towards long-term relationships. And some of those thoughts I share in this episode, and that was perhaps a bit out of my comfort zone to share that with you, but I did. I also talked about Liz's love life, too, and how writing this book changed the way she thinks about love and marriage. Also, P.S., Liz is a friend of mine. I got special permission from our ethics editor to do this interview. Uh, We'll fill you in on that in the episode itself. Enjoy. Hi. Hello. Uh, let's just full disclosure to our sure. listeners. Uh, we're friends. friends We've known are. each other since we worked together briefly at the Washington Post, which was 2010. Correct. Um, and I mean, I, I think we started almost on the same on day. On the same day. I was a few days ahead of you. And then you walked me off and I was like, who is this newbie? Yeah. After I'd been there like four yeah. days. And you were basically <laughs> in my space all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, like most DC journalists, we know all the other DC journalists. And I remember at a point in our friendship, you got a book deal. Correct. And we all were so excited for you. <laughs> Before we get to the book itself, I do kind of want to walk through the years between the deal that you got mm-hmm. and the release, which is tomorrow, I kind of got to see you go through that process. And gosh, it is not nearly as romantic as folks would have it seem. No, it's not. It's a lot of crying alone in rooms. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got the deal back in 2015, just after uh, graduating from grad school. And it was a long, painful process. None of it was romantic. And um you know, spent two years going writing, going back and forth on edits. Going um, back and forth to India. <laughs> going back and forth to India, of course. Um, you know, worrying about whether I can even get into India because it's become harder under the new administration. Yeah. You know, trying to organize notes in one million different ways, structuring the book, restructuring it, throwing it in the garbage, starting over again. Um and going through, you know, 10 rounds of edits. Each time you feel like you're done, maybe you should go celebrate. Yeah. And well, I would see you sometimes. You'd be like, I turned in the final copy. <laughs> and the next month, you're like, I'm turning the final just copy. <laughs> <laughs> the work here is never done. It's like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Everything just keeps <laughs> multiplying. Yeah. Did you, I guess we should walk through what the book is to talk about how what went into it. Because it, mm-hmm. it was, as far as books go, it seemed like you pick the hardest kind of book to write. Yeah. Uh, It is a piece of narrative nonfiction where you follow three couples in India and through their stories tell the story of modern love in India. Mm -hmm. But you, like, you lived with them. Yeah, yeah. It's immersion journalism, sort of like the art of hanging out. And it 
basically entails spending as much time as humanly possible with people. And, you know, it is so satisfying as a journalist to be able to not just parachute in somewhere and to spend a significant amount of time. And you realize as you go how much you don't know. And you think you you think you understand a person. You think you understand a moment. You think you understand an exchange. And the longer you spend, you realize you didn't know you didn't know what was going on at all. Um, So. It's really rewarding in the end, I think, but it just requires a tremendous amount of time. And for the people I was interviewing, they're like, oh, Jesus, you're still around. Because you, like, you were in the house. Yeah. I mean, I met them in 2008, mostly. Okay. Yeah. And so that was 10 years ago. And, you know, liked them then, was interested in doing this project then, but had no idea what I was doing because I was 21 and had yeah. no idea how to write a book or even to go about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, briefly describe each of the three couples. All three couples are middle class. Uh, Ashok and Parvati are really young. He's a journalist. She's a student. They're Tamil Brahmins, and Brahmin is the highest caste. Um, And Maya and Veer are uh, approaching middle age. Maya is a school principal, and Veer is a businessman, and they... And Janu is their son, who sounds really cute. And Janu is their adorable son, who's probably the most adorable child of all time. (laughs) And they are Hindus who had a love marriage and were together despite all obstacles in their way and married. Um, And Shazad and Sabina are an older Muslim couple who met just before their wedding day and arranged marriage. How how big is caste still in India? I think us Americans just assume, well, it can't nearly be what it was a century ago, but I don't know. Yeah, I think if you were to just parachute into India, you would feel like caste isn't playing as much of a role and it's probably playing less of one. But you dig a little deeper and you see how entrenched it still is, Um, you know, especially outside of cities. But even among like Ashok and Parvati, right, they're both Brahmins of the Mm -hmm. highest caste. And I felt like, okay, they're middle class, uh, very educated, probably they think the caste system is ridiculous. And... I mean, it played a huge yeah. factor in their they marriage. Were into it. Yeah. And I heard Ashok at different points sort of emphasize that Brahmins were pure, that Brahmins were higher, that Brahmins were more important, that Brahmins were to be trusted and were better educated. And especially their parents certainly felt that way. So I think those notions are still really embedded in how people think, no matter what um, economic background mm-hmm. you're from or how well educated you are, it can still yeah. play sort of. Um, a less overt role where you don't see it on the surface, but it's still it's driving a lot of decisions, yeah. especially in marriage. Yeah. And, and and cultures have a way of perpetuating things that they don't even like. I mean, even the idea of arranged marriage. Yeah. So many of these young folks in India that you hear about entering into arranged marriages who actually love someone else, a lot of them are going to put their kids in arranged marriages. Yeah. It perpetuates. Well, this is what I didn't understand. I mean, with Ashok and Parvati, Parvati uh-huh. never wanted an arranged marriage. She was in love with someone. She wanted desperately to marry him. And then at the end of the book and at the end of my reporting process, she told me she was going to make sure her daughter had an arranged marriage. And I was shocked. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't speak. Yeah. Why um, do you think that is? <laughs> I mean, I think she sees the benefits of it now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I struggled with whether I felt like there was a certain um, giving in that women do sometimes in arranged marriages where they say, like, I didn't want this for myself, but now I'm going to force myself to think this is a good thing, or whether that's an absurd outsider's view that I have and that they really are seeing the benefits in their marriage and they really are seeing that they have a stable life that maybe they have to have had to make compromises for, but that they are going to be with this person for the rest of their life and um, they see the benefits. So it's hard to know. 
it's one of the things where it's like you think you know about a place like India because mm-hmm. it's in the culture and you see yeah. stuff. But like reading your book, let me know how much I don't know. Like, what do you think American readers will be the most surprised by as mm-hmm. they read about this book and read about love in India? I was very surprised to the extent that which families are really involved in arranged marriages. Mm-hmm. They don't just set it up. Like right. once you get married, the wife belongs to the family of the groom and lives in, in their some house cases, yeah. in some cases. Yeah. That was I would I never thought about that. Right. I was like, "Oh my god, that is a thing." Right. I mean, in-laws are really difficult in any culture. <laughs> yeah. But there's a particularly difficult thing about um, Indian mother-in-laws. It's like a fabled, long-standing tradition that Indian mother-in-laws are incredibly difficult. And it's hard, really hard as a new And you're in bride. their house. It's crazy. And yeah. And you really have to adapt to their rules and um, radically change your life. Change what you're wearing. Change what your schedule is. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, like the overall things that were that I hope I've conveyed in this book is that, um, of course, there are things that are radically different about India than the U.S. And then, of course, there are like thousands of little details that are, of course, exactly like American life. And for marriage, so much of that is the case as well. I mean, there are really different practices like arranged marriage, which is very low in the United States. Um, but then the problems that exist within an arranged marriage can be exactly the same. Yeah. So. Well, and like you do this really interesting thing. You signpost the big moments in these couples' lives with big moments in India's history. Mm-hmm. Like in this year there were the riots and this year it was very dry. The mm-hmm. partition did this. And like you do this really good job, I think, of not just giving the readers – snippets of these Indian lives, but snippets of Indian history, mm-hmm. uh, that that seemed very purposeful. Yeah. I mean, those were huge moments in their lives. And, yeah. you know, all th- all three couples went through the Mumbai terror attacks. Um, those happened right after I moved there. And I saw how much that upended the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, as much as possible, I wanted this book to read like a novel, but I also wanted people to just learn a little bit more about India and Indian history and I don't know. I mean, there's so much to get into, so I feel like I only gave a small taste. So, How did you find these couples? How did you pick these three? Um, I met at least one person, the couple at least, all back in 2008, right when I moved there. Um, By virtue of, like, where you were hanging out or what? Well, a combination of being um, restless, homesick, and broke. Ended okay. up living with multiple families. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, whoa. How did that start? <laughs> who did that? Okay, back up. You were, you were wandering the streets. <laughs> who will house me? <laughs> no, 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 no. So how did it happen? Um, incredible generosity. Um, friends of friends of friends of friends. I really huh. knew no uh, no one when I landed in Mumbai. Did you have a job when you landed in Mumbai? I did not have a job. You just went. And I had $100. It was. A, I wouldn't advise this to anyone. When it's did you? It was just, how, how far after college was this? Um, I believe it was a couple months later. Um, after you finished college? After I finished college. So you graduated there. and were like, I'm going. Yes. And, you know, my mother and many others tried to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> but... So I moved to Mumbai um, and lived with one family who's not in the book. And then and then from there, through contacts, sort of ended up living with other families because I was just trying to get my footing. I had no idea what I was doing. And they were very generous and kind yeah. to let me live there. And um, eventually, I, I, yes, I did get my own place. Okay. <laughs> but it's also really difficult to do that when you're a foreigner living in India. It's yeah. hard to get a, a place. So. And so of the families you bounced around with and living with, you decided on three to be in the book. What made those three the three? 
Yeah. I mean, I think it was that I couldn't get them out of my head. um, And I would try to ask myself, like, what is the reason that these three um, compel you so much? And I think some of it was that they were seemed to me rule breakers in a way. And not that I could have articulated then because it was more of an unconscious choice, I think. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, India is undergoing so much change, social, um, cultural, political, economic just incredible amounts of upheaval that I think is placing pressure on the Indian marriage and is really, you know, Indian women are gaining a lot more agency. So many more women are going to work and um, getting more education are watching more pornography or having more affairs. There's so many ways that that's playing out. And I think in these particular marriages, I saw that there were people within them that were sort of striving to break the rules or test the boundaries, test the limits. Maya. Yeah. Girl, that's a whole other follow-up episode. I have many thoughts. <laughs> yeah, and in a lot her. of these cases, one half of the couple was breaking the rules or testing the boundaries, and the other half was sort of stuck in maybe older ways, and that tension was was um, something that I wanted to understand. Yeah. So. When you, so you started out living with these people, mm-hmm. but they were not yet the subject of your book. Did something happen, change, shift in your relationship with them once you said... And also, <laughs> I'm writing a book about you. Yeah. I mean, so from 2008 to 2010, I li- lived with them, asked, asked them questions about their marriage, but really informally. I was like, yeah. maybe I'll write a novel about this. Maybe I'll write a Bollywood movie. <laughs> Who knows? My aspirations were great and my execution was poor. But um, And so that was more of an informal process. Mm-hmm. And then in 2014, I said... I would like to follow up. You know, we've stayed in touch ever since. And um, I've been asking you all these questions about your marriage. And I want to write a book about this, a nonfiction book, which will require an incredible amount of me being in your house and and being sort of (laughs) there when you probably don't want me to be and in private moments. And, you know, they all gave me permission. You know, some of them I went and spoke to them more in depth, of course, about what this would entail. I don't think they thought it was going to be like such a long process. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you still here? I'm sure you didn't think it'd be this long of a process yeah. either. Yeah. Would you, would you, so you'd be in the house just like observing, but would you also pull them away for like one-on-one interviews? Yeah. It was really important to me to talk to the couples both separately and, and together, together and do a mix of you know, formal sit down. You were kind of a therapist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there was a lot of cases where I felt like a third wheel because I would be traveling with them or, you know, be in these really awkward situations where they'd be fighting. And, you know, I've been there so long that I felt like at that point I was basically invisible. So, you yeah. know, in the beginning, people are fighting. And they're like, oh, don't fight. Yeah. She's here. Or yeah. maybe we'll save this for later. And then by the end, they're like, who cares? <laughs> and, you know, having like caterwauling huge fights. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that in any of those three couples that mm-hmm. you changed their trajectory? Do you think that your being involved in their life and writing a book about them changed what their relationship is or could have been? I mean, I think it's silly to pretend otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like, as journalists, we try to pretend that we have no impact on the lives of the people that we interview. And I think that's sort of ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even just by virtue of the fact of asking people a lot of questions about their marriage. Makes them think about it. Makes them think about it. Makes them think twice about things. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think your impact was overall positive or negative for their relationships? I hope it was positive. Um, When do you think No one has broken up yet. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know... I also was there for a period of time, but I also was not there. And I haven't been there for a long period of time. And so, 
again, I feel like I'm an expert on these marriages, but there's still, as anyone who's been married a long time knows, you still don't know a lot about oh, your yeah. partner when you're married to them for 40 years. So yeah. I certainly don't know everything. Yeah. All right, time for a break. When we come back, we'll talk about how Liz dealt with working and living in India as a white person. All right, BRB. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whenever it's convenient for you. Access all the amazing services of the post office right from your home or office and skip the trip for a four-week free trial plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Minute. You've probably heard about this Russia investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller. Every day there's a new headline about it. Well, Embedded is back with two episodes that lay the whole thing out, start to finish, so the news makes sense. Listen on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. How many hours, weeks, months, days would you say that you were in these folks' houses altogether? Um, well, I lived with them in 2008 for months, some of the months at a time. And then again in 2014 and 15 on extended uh, reporting trips for three months. So I, I spent at least months living with all of them. And in some cases, it was hard to convince them to let me stay that long or, yeah. you know, it's pretty annoying to have a person just yeah. and like, sleeping there. And like... In some of these houses, it was more than just a couple. It was the family. Right. Because they live with the family. Right. And joint families, which yeah. often entail 12 people. Oh, my God. I mean, and there's people coming in and out that you don't recognize. And, there's, you know, it's a cousin's cousin's <laughs> uncle who's yeah. now staying there as well. Um, you know, and sleeping on the floor or wherever is I could squeeze myself in and trying to be as unobtrusive as possible. Yeah. Um, and in one of the cases of the couple I stayed with, they basically said, if I left, I probably wouldn't be able to get back into the house because it was, I, you know, they so had to convince the sort of matriarch of the family that so I could come in. in. And so I didn't leave for, at, at one point, a, a couple weeks. Um, like you didn't physically leave the house? The, the apartment, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you don't realize how difficult that is until you do it. And I was just desperately wanting to go outside, but um, knew that I had to stay. So, wow. What would you, what was your spiel when you were trying to convince people other than the couple to let you into these homes? Um, you know, I would explain the project as much as I could and just say I was trying to understand um, love and marriage in India and, and through through these people. But in a lot of cases, I think they were just like, I don't want to hear. I don't really care what you're doing. <laughs> just like, don't don't cause trouble. Yeah. You know, and, and living with the Muslim family, who was pretty conservative. I think they were basically like, OK, wear a headscarf and you can stay. And you did. You know? Yeah, of course. Or, or you know, even a burqa if if, if on a holiday. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it was really about respecting the rules of that house and yeah. and and knowing what those were and yeah. not being an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I think an added wrinkle to all of this, um, listeners, you might not see it right now, but I'll tell you a secret. Liz is white <laughs> and she is blonde. And you probably stuck out a bit in India uh, in, yeah. in, in, in these homes. Was that an issue? Um, I mean, in some ways, I think you're at an advantage slightly because hmm. you're different and um, people are willing to help out. And, huh. you know, in my experience... With families in India, people are extremely generous and open their homes to you and, you know, treat you as if you're family. Um, but, of course, it was more difficult. I mean, skin color is definitely 
a major topic of conversation in India. There mm-hmm. is still fair and lovely cream yeah. that's advertised. To lighten the skin. To lighten skin. And I remember once my uh, Indian girlfriend and I were sitting next to each other and she was putting on fair and lovely and I was putting on bronzer. And we were just like, this is <laughs> This is weird. But for me, it was more about the pers- what pale skin, yes, but just generally being an outsider and with blonde hair. I think um, my experiences with sexual harassment, um, I mean, many, many Indian women deal with sexual harassment. And I was no different. And I don't know if it was more because I was a foreigner or not, but it certainly was something that was a fabric of my daily life um, when I was taking the train. And there are women's train cars, but sometimes I would arrive late and be on the men's car. And obviously I learned over time how to try to mitigate that. Um, How would you mitigate it? You know, by getting early, there early and getting on the women's train car. But there was, you know, still on the platform or in in many other places and, you know, um, once in my home. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, But it's just a part of daily life. And I think um, there is the perception, even one of the characters in the book said to me at one point, you know, you're a Ferengi, you're a foreigner, so you must want sex all the time. And he, he got that perception from a few Bollywood movies he'd seen. Huh. And even though he had known me already for nine years at this point and knew that yeah. you know, that was a ridiculous thing, he still had this sort of embedded notion in his huh. mind that I had to sort of sit him down and talk to him about it and make sh- sure that he understood that that was not correct. Yeah. And so I think you're working and and also like pornography in India, a lot of the pornography that's making its way there is made in the West. So I think that encourages the perception that Western women are loose, that Mm. blonde women want sex, Mm. that they're going to do all these extreme things sexually. Um, And as uh, Shazad says in the book, he's like, those images are always playing in their heads. And that's... um, some people believe that's caused sexual violence to rise is, huh. is how much more pornography is available, really? which I don't think has been pinned down one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But, huh. Yeah. Would you – and you write about this in the foreword of the book. Um, it is an interesting moment and an interesting time to write a book about a culture that is not your own. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in the politics and online society we live in could take a lot of issue – with mm-hmm. the very fact that you as a white woman from Illinois mm-hmm. had the audacity to write this book. Right. What did you learn <clears throat> over the process of writing this book about India as a white person? Like, were there things that you learned and how to do it that might be applicable to other writers that might want to write or think about or report on mm-hmm. places that aren't their own? Like, was there a big takeaway for you in that regard? I think the biggest takeaway was me, for me was understanding how much I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Just because when I first moved there, I lived there from 2008 to 2010 as a reporter for for a magazine. And I felt like a few months in, wow, I'm really getting the hang of this. I uh-huh. understand India. I understand Mumbai. It was totally ridiculous. I didn't understand <laughs> anything. Um, and then, of course, the more you get to know, the more you realize you don't know. And I think that is a really important starting point in just realizing how how much you're just scratching the surface and and just asking questions. And so there was a lot of reporting I did on this book that didn't make it into the book, like mm-hmm. interviewing 
academics and historians and filmmakers and Bollywood stars and authors and asking them to talk to me about what they how they would want to see this book, um, you know, about history, just asking a million questions and mm-hmm. doing the work beyond the pages of it yeah. to, to make sure that I at least had made a good faith effort to understand it as yeah. best as I could. Well, and like I was and I guess I wasn't surprised. It was it was affirming to know that a lot of the issues I see myself and my friends here go through in relationships, folks in India are going through it the same way. One of the trend lines I noticed in some of the characters is that they they all wanted to have expectations that this thing would work, Mm -hmm. that it would last. Even if it was not the love of their lives, they wanted it to work. Mm -hmm. And yet and still, a lot of the characters found ways, in spite of their expectation, to honestly self-sabotage mm-hmm. Maya I was just uh, enamored with like she I, I don't want to give too much of it away but she's hanging out with someone who is not her husband mm-hmm. and the husband is basically like you gotta do what you gotta do I'm not mad at you like whatever mm-hmm. and so he allows her to do that but then the whole time she's hoping that she's will kind of make him jealous or something it's, it's like it's like she almost wants this bad behavior to lead to good behavior from mm-hmm. him that was the thing that i saw in the book and just mm-hmm. seemed so crystal clear in my life mm-hmm. in my that we all do irrational yeah. crazy things oh yeah yeah when mar- when a marriage is not going well i mean you can do irrational crazy things to try to fix it or just try to get the attention of a person again i mean i think you know, in a recent book that came out about marriage, it said there were less happy marriages than there used to be, but hmm. the ones that are happy are happier than ever before. So wow. there's a smaller number of them, but those that are... F- and, and the thing he found about those small segment of, of happy couples, happy married couples, is that they had nothing in common. They had all different kinds, huh. which is like, great, what am I supposed to yeah. take away from this? <laughs> Basically, that people have to do what works for them. Like, you find mm-hmm. a partner and whatever it is that works for you, whether you have an open, non-monogamous relationship, whether you have the most faithful relationship mm-hmm. of all time where you spend every moment together, whatever it is it that works for you, I think, is the takeaway there, which is, you know, yeah. a, a, as always with love and marriage, not an easy answer. Yeah. Do you think that the couples in your book are moving closer to partnerships that really, truly work for them? Not constantly. Mm. I think it's two steps forward, one step back in, in most of the cases. But yeah, that's sort of forward movement. Yeah. Do you think that you are closer on your way to getting towards that thing that works for you and a partner through writing this book? Or did it? totally up into all of your notions and all the things you thought and now you're like oh my god uh i don't know <laughs> i honestly don't know yeah. i wish i knew i Does hope i'm getting closer you? it's incredibly frustrating i stay up at <laughs> night thinking you spent 10 years researching this damn thing <laughs> so you could figure it out and you know nothing <laughs> yeah but did I you... don't think that's true yeah i think i got a little bit closer to understanding you did and i was coming to this project with, you know, personal baggage, as we all do, of what marriages look like. Yeah. And And you had a breakup over the course of writing the book. Yeah. I mean, the person that I thought I was going to marry, we broke up pretty much right when I handed in the book. And, you know, that was incredibly devastating and made me feel like this book was a failure, a personal failure. Huh. But I feel differently about that now after the space of time. How do you feel about it now? Um, 
I feel like that probably wasn't the right person. And if I hadn't, for me, um, and if I hadn't written this book, I probably wouldn't have figured that out. So maybe I did learn a lesson of some kind. Do you believe in marriage more or less now? I don't know. I think... I think, um, you know, we're all we're, we're obviously many of us driven to partnerships and there's a lot of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. And it serves a lot of roles in our society and it has for a really long time, whether it was an arranged marriage, you know, longer ago in the West and or even in the present day in, in India or whether it's a marriage driven by love. Um, marriage is a very useful thing mm-hmm. and love is a very, um, you know, charismatic thing. It's a thing that we all we all want. But um I don't know. I was thinking about how that very idea of marrying for love makes marriage an inherently unstable thing because it's all based on this premise that you have a feeling which could change. Yes. So whereas if you approach it just saying this is a partnership, we're going to share the mortgage. Right. That's fixed. Right. Or, yeah. And this is arranged marriage. And we're 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 marrying because our families make sense for us to be together Mm -hmm. or for the economics of it. Um, That's going to be a more stable thing. And I am not arguing that. Everyone should have arranged marriage, of course. I just think it makes sense that marriage is so incredibly difficult. Yeah. I found myself reading the book saying to myself, you can have a spark, but it won't last forever. And even if you say, screw the spark, this is just the partnership that the families chose for us, even that becomes tiresome after a while. Like, there there were times, I think, that even the couples that went into these partnerships with mm-hmm. lowered expectations, mm-hmm. they eventually couldn't even hit those. Is there something to be said about, especially in chronicling these couples for years, the way that what we expect changes over time mm-hmm. and makes it harder over time, whether it's an arranged marriage or a love marriage? We want different things and that's always changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... Some comedian said that marriage plus time equals hate, <laughs> which I believe it <laughs> is true and also isn't true. I mean, the thing that I saw, having gone back to these couples at different points in their marriage, and mm-hmm. like at one point I was away from India for five years and then checked in with them again, is how radically different it was. So I would come away from a reporting trip and be like, okay, this couple is over. Like they're going to yeah. get divorced. Yeah. No question. Absolutely, it's over. And then I would go back again a year later. I would check in with them a few months later. And again, the marriage was radically different. It was like a sinusoidal wave where it would go up and down and up and down. I mean, and that's like most marriages, I think. And so, you know, do you want to stick it out through those low points or not? Um, Well, and like it just confirmed me reading reading the book. Like, I don't. I just like you don't. I don't. You don't want to stick it out through those points. And and like marriage is not for you. Probably not. Never. I don't think. I was just reading the book, Mm -hmm. and for all the couples. There'd be a point where I'd be like, leave him, leave her, mm-hmm. break up. I would never let them. And like, right. that's my first impulse. So was that about the sacrifices that people had to make? Because, I mean, that's obviously a huge, that's a huge part of it. The but. sacrifices, but also just like the idea that one person is intertwined so intricately mm. in my life. Mm. The idea that I would shape major life decisions of my own mm-hmm. around someone else. That's a very individualistic way of looking at it. Yeah. No. And I mean, like, I was reading the book being like, I'm not cut out for this. I don't, like, the book for me mm-hmm. underscored how, like, uh, 
usually marriage is not fun. Mm-hmm. But I know how to have fun by myself. Like <laughs> I know what makes me happy. I know the or things in shorter that... term relationships. Yeah, and it's it, it was no it, it it really made me ask myself some hard questions and basically say to myself, Sam, you're a garbage trash person. No, that's okay. No. But we are. I mean, we are more individualistic in the United States, right? Like one of the first things I noticed when I moved to India is how much less people use the pronoun I or huh. me. Huh. Um, and we're constantly doing All that, right? Time. We're like, I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm yes. stressed. I like yes. this person. I don't like this person. I want that. And I think that, of course, filters down to like our conceptions of marriage and what we're willing to yeah. sacrifice and give and um, what we're willing to put up with or not. One more break here. Uh, coming up, Liz and I get really real on how we feel about marriage for ourselves. We'll be right back. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash minute. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know more or less about marriage now? I think I know more, and this is really bad uh, marketing for my book, and understand less. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Truly, I think, if anything, it's probably made me more confused in my own personal life yeah. <laughs> about relationships and marriage. I mean, I grew up the child of uh, multiple marriages and divorces. Um, my dad just got married and divorced a, a few times, and I think I grew up hungering to understand why marriages work or fail. I just, you know, whether I was thinking about it consciously or not, I wanted to understand that, like, in any culture or context, what is it that makes a marriage work or fail? Yeah, yeah. And um, now that I've studied it to death, (laughs) I feel like it's almost like you it's a very human impulse to try to research your way out of a problem. Like you're like, I have this flaw or I have this problem or there's this thing I want to figure out. I can fix it by, like, learning about it or reading about it or researching it. And... Love is a really tricky thing to try to research. You might even say it's a shifting sea. <laughs> very good. Very good. Thank you, Sam. So I don't know. I mean, I I think it's important, of course, to think about these things and read about them and, and learn about it. But uh, I'm ready to move on to other topics so that my love life you know, yeah. can be more stable. Well, you have this essay that comes out in the Times uh, a few days ago in their Modern Love section Mm -hmm. where you drew a lot of parallels between yourself and one of the characters in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I'm guessing what you're saying to us is that all through the process of writing this book, Mm -hmm. you were also thinking very critically about love and you. Mm -hmm. That seems very hard. Yeah. I mean, for someone who's... And I think all of us are like hungering to learn lessons throughout life about how to be a better person, a better partner. Um, the tendency is to sort of like research this and feel like you've learned a lesson and then try to apply it. And then you realize, you know, the context is slightly different yeah. or 
um, the lesson you learned wasn't exactly right or everything is more complicated than you imagined. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I definitely saw, you know, with one of the characters in particular, with one of the people, um, you know, as I talk about the essay, we both have similar struggles with fidelity and that's a really hard thing to square with yourself. Um, and so in some ways it made this project a lot closer to the bone. Yeah. But I also wanted to try to remove myself because I'm I'm approaching this as a reporter yeah. who's there sitting scribbling away with my notebook or my recorder or whatever. Um and so you have to you have to remove yourself. So I don't know. How are your parents taking the book? I mean, they you write about them kind of being the impetus to write to want to, part of your yeah. not obsession with marriage, but thinking a lot about it is based on what you've seen in their marriages growing up. Yeah. Um how do they? How are they reacting to it? Have they read it? My dad, yes, uh, yes. Uh, well, my mom has. My dad has not yet. But my dad yesterday called me and he said, "I'm just curious how many publications you're going to mention my three divorces in. How many major newspapers that are going to arrive on my doorstep are going to mention this fact? We've got a few already. Just curious. Uh, no, but he's been very kind and said that uh, the truth is what's important. So. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I want to tell you what I walked away from the book with. Um, I think all throughout the book, you realize, even with the most love, with the best of intentions, even with all the effort in the world, love and marriage is just really, really, really hard. And I think that for a long time, I would tell myself when I wanted to get out of, out of – a relationship. Well, it shouldn't be this hard. Love should be the easy part of my life. Love should be the fun part, the part that always keeps me up and happy. Work is hard. Love should not be hard. And I would tell myself that. And that's not true. The opposite. <laughs> it's the opposite, true. right? And it's the, the most book work. Yeah, and the book really underscored that, and I think it was a good reminder that like no matter how good we think we get it or we've got it, it's work every day. It's work. Yeah. Every single day. Yeah. yeah. At the end of this process, thinking about love and marriage for as long as you have been thinking, what would you go back and tell Liz at the start of your previous relationships? Spend more time alone. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think all of us want to be in relationships. Yeah. And we want to be loved yeah. and we want to love yeah it's but the times in my life when i've figured the most out mm. have been when i was alone and the last time that i was single for a prolonged period of time was in india and i've probably figured out the most about myself then wow. both by virtue of being out uh, on my own yeah. in a foreign country but also just being single and yeah. um i just think you'll be a better partner if you spend more time with yourself. Buy my book about marriage. Exactly and be alone. Right. <laughs> I'm going to get an angry call out of this. <laughs> no, this is good. This is good. Um, this was a delight. Thank you, Sam. We're still friends. It. I think so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a lot of hard questions. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sam. Oh, my God. Thank you. Liz Flock's book is called The Heart is a Shifting Sea. Love and Marriage in Mumbai. It's out now. I just finished reading it and really, really enjoyed it. Uh, And I'm not just saying that because I know her. All right, Liz, thank you for the chat. Listeners, as always, I want to hear from you for our Friday shows. Send me a recording of you telling me the best thing that happened to you all week. And Brad, don't forget to brag, all right? 
Email that file to samsanders at npr.org. It's samsanders at npr.org. We're back on Friday. Until then, I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.